If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be jumping back into Galatians. Um, and one of the things about going straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse, not skipping anything, is sometimes you come up to some hard passages and you can't, what are you laughing at? Don't be laughing, Cameron. You can't skip them. You can't, we're not going to skip them anyway, but we're going to deal with this passage. We're, we're actually jumping back into Galatians. If you haven't been here for a little bit, we've taken off the last few weeks to, uh, um, to talk about other things. And so the first thing I want to do then is remind you of where we are at in the book of Galatians. There it is. So false teachers had come into the churches in Galatia, remember? And they were what we call Judaizers. So they were people who claimed to be Christians who said, you must trust in Jesus Christ, but they were adding the Old Testament laws, the works of the law, circumcision and the traditions of Moses. And they were saying that salvation for the Galatians, for the Gentiles, was not by faith alone in Jesus' gospel alone. It was by faith in Jesus plus you must be circumcised, you must follow these traditions, you must live as a Jewish person, basically according to the laws of Moses. And Paul is writing the letter of Galatians to defend the truth of the gospel, that salvation is a free gift of God received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone with nothing else added to it. And it was, it's important for us as we've been walking through this letter because we see as even as believers, uh, we often fail to walk in the perfect saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We often are tempted and fall into the pattern of thinking that we have to add things to be completely pure before God or more right with God or to add to our standing. And we've been, we've been seeing the truth of the gospel gospel alone makes us right before God as we've walked through Galatians. And in chapter 3, Paul turned the corner in his argument uh, for salvation by faith to the Galatians in verses 1 through 5. If you remember in chapter 3, Paul reminded, <clears throat> excuse me, reminded the Galatians of how they had received the Holy Spirit. Remember those questions he asked? He reminded them of how God came to dwell in them. He said, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the point he made was, it's not by works of the law that God came to dwell with you. It was by hearing with faith. So to think now, Galatians, that you must be perfected somehow by the works of the law is foolish. He even called them foolish. And then in verses 6 through 9, he showed us... That from the scripture, God foretold that he would save the Gentiles by faith alone when he gave the covenant promises to Abraham. In verses 8 and 9, we read this a few, uh, I guess it's three or four weeks ago now. It says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would, look at it, justify the Gentiles by faith. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul showed us and the Galatians that by faith in Jesus, the Gentiles are given the covenant promises of Abraham. It was through faith, it says, that they were justified before God. And then in verses 10 through 14, he showed from the scriptures also that 
everyone who tries to live by the law, to earn their righteousness by the law, is under a curse, under the curse of the law. And the only way to have that curse removed and the blessing and inheritance of salvation, Abraham's promise, is Jesus Christ who took the curse upon himself and redeemed us at the cross. It says in verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, look at it, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And verse 14 is where we left off the last time we were in Galatians. Now, as we continue into verse 15, and pretty much the, the majority of the rest of the chapter anyway, Paul's going to show us the relationship between the law of Moses, which is God's word in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God's word, the law of Moses, and the promise God made to Abraham. Now, we're going to take one section at a time because this is a very complex argument that Paul gives, and it's easy to get lost in the details. So instead of just reading the whole thing, we're going to read it one section of it at a time. And if you need some coffee, you, just, you better get it now, because it's, it's going to be, you're going to have to follow me pretty close now. You need to have your own Bible out in front of you. Don't trust the screen. It may go down. We want our Bible in front of us, and we're going to follow what Paul says from verses 15 to 26. Are you with me? Okay. What he's going to do is show us how the law and the promise work together to assure us in Christ of God's salvation. So let's just read 15 through 18 to start. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Then he goes on to say, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You understand? All right, let's go home. Now, Paul is continuing his defense of salvation by faith alone. The promise to Abraham given to the Gentiles by faith in Jesus Christ. And he continues in this section by showing that the law cannot annul the covenant promise. Paul begins in verse 15 by saying, let me give you a, a human illustration, a human example and then in 15, he said, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. When people enter into a legal covenant, a legal contract, or a testament, or you might even say a will, like a last will, when they enter into these contracts with one another, that, and that agreement, that contract, that covenant is signed, it's sealed, it's enacted and fulfilled, there's no way to set it aside. There's no way to go back and add to it once the terms of the contract have come to fruition. You can't go back in time and change them. Once the covenant is ratified, as Paul says here in verse 15, that's it. It can't be undone. And if it's true between human beings and their covenants and their contracts, how much more true for the covenant promises of God who cannot lie 
that he gave to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham that covenant salvation would go to the nations by faith in Abraham's offspring. We just read it. He said, all nations in you will be blessed. And Paul says he was, God was preaching the gospel to Abraham beforehand. That promise was speaking of Jesus' salvation. And then in verse 16, he says the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. Literally, the word is seed. And he says it's not plural, seeds, offsprings. It's singular. Paul says that seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. The last thing you see in verse 16, who is Christ? So the promise was given to Christ, who is the true seed of Abraham. It was given to Abraham and to his offspring and to Christ. From the early chapters of Genesis, all things have been pointing to Christ, to Jesus and his salvation and the gospel of his salvation. Paul just said God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying in you all nations will be blessed. Salvation through faith in Christ is what God's story is all about. It's what the Bible as a whole is all about. It's one grand story that began with the promise that God would send a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And all of the Bible is that story culminating in Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham. He is the true seed of Abraham, if you want to say it that way. No other descendant of Abraham succeeded in bringing God's blessing to the nations. Not Abraham himself, not Moses, not David, not the prophets, not even the nation of Israel. Jesus alone is the perfect seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the prophet Moses said would come in Deuteronomy and the promised king from David's line. And Paul says, since this is true, since Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, then the law that God gave through Moses 430 years later can't annul the promised salvation that God gave through Abraham. He says, this is what I mean. He says, I'm going to explain to you what I'm talking about. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. That's why he said covenants don't get undone once they're ratified. He says, it can't undo the covenant so as to make the promise that he gave to Abraham void. For if the inheritance, if salvation comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God did give it to Abraham by a promise. Paul said God gave this inheritance to Abraham by a promise. In Genesis 15, when God made his covenant with Abraham, there were no works assigned to Abraham. There were no laws yet written in stone. There was the law, but there were no laws written out in stone there were no conditions put on Abraham that he had to fulfill. God came to Abraham and just said a bunch of I wills. I will give to you. I will give you a seed, an offspring, and in your seed all nations will be blessed. Paul's point in this section is that if you Galatians think that the gospel is not enough to completely and perfectly make a sinner right with God, even a Gentile, 
If you think that you must add works or laws or traditions or rituals or anything to salvation in order for a sinner to be made right with God, then you are making the promise of God void. Do you see it? Verse 17 at the end. So to make the promise void, you're nullifying what God said to Abraham. Paul is basically reiterating what he said several times in this letter. If salvation, which is the covenant promise to Abraham, Paul's made that clear. If salvation comes by the law, then it can't be a gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's either received by faith in the promise of God, in the work of Jesus Christ, or it's received by works and efforts and law keeping it's either one or the other. You cannot mix the two. To add any, even the tiniest work to our salvation, to thinking that I'm right with God by adding anything that I do, by saying that, well, my salvation is good, but in order to complete my righteousness, to make me pure and perfect before God, I need to add this thing and the other thing. That destroys the gospel message and it nullifies the promise. But that leads us really to the, to the central question of this section. Paul, if what you're saying is true, if God gave the promise to Abraham and then the law came 430 years later through, through Moses to the people, um, aren't you saying that the promise cancels out the law? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Isn't the law God's word too? I mean, are you saying this part of God's word is more important than this part of God's word over here? I mean, didn't God command his people to obey him? Paul says, yes, of course. But he goes on to show that we have misunderstood the purpose of the law. It was never intended to give life. In verses 19 through 21, he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, the seed, should come to whom the promise had been made. He's talking about Jesus. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Now these verses are, are kind of difficult to weed through, so stay with me. What he's showing us here is he's showing us the reason the law was given. It wasn't to receive the covenant promises. It wasn't to receive the inheritance. The law can't give life. Verse 19 says it was added because of transgressions. Now this phrase has been interpreted many, many different ways throughout history. But the idea is not that the law was given to cure transgressions or to stop transgressions. It's just the opposite. The law was given to reveal them, to reveal them more fully, to increase them, to show the full depth and the nature of our sin our sin being transgressions of God's nature. Sin existed from the fall. It existed from the garden. But when the law of God was given, written in stone as it were, the boundary marker was set for everyone to see. The law showed mankind how far across the boundary we had transgressed. And we were transgressing. 
The law's main work is to expose mankind's sin for what it is, a legal offense against the nature of a holy God, a transgressing across God's line in the sand. The purpose of the law was to pull back the curtain and to show humanity just how far off the reservation we are, to show the utter wickedness of our sin and the inability of our hearts to be right with God. Paul says in Romans 3 verses 19 and 20, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was not given to correct the problem of sin. It doesn't have the power to do that. By works of the law, no one will be justified, he says in Romans 3. The law just shows us how wicked we are. So Paul's argument is that the law was not given to secure the promise, as you Galatians are being told. The law can't overthrow the promise that was made centuries earlier. It was never intended to overthrow the promise of salvation by faith. It was not intended to complete our salvation as the Galatians were being told. And to prove this, he says at the end of verse 19, second half of verse 19, he says, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Intermediary is Moses, by the way. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. These verses are notoriously hard to interpret and understand. We need to remember, Paul is contrasting the law and the promise. So he shows that the law was given through angels and through Moses, an intermediary. Now the activity of angels in giving the law is spoken of in several places, Deuteronomy, Psalms. Stephen even speaks of it in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. But here Paul is focusing on the intermediary, Moses. Moses was the go-between. You remember? He would go up the mountain and he would speak with God. God would give him the law. He would come back down the mountain. He would give God's word to God's people. And so what does this really have to do with your argument, Paul? What does it have to do with saying, well, the law was given through angels and an intermediary? Paul is using the intermediary, Moses, to show that the law was a contract between two parties. He says in verse 20, an intermediary implies more than one. You see it? More than one party is what he means. More than one party was swearing to this covenant. Both God and Israel had terms to fulfill in the law covenant. We see this when the law was given. It was ratified at Mount Sinai. Then he, in Exodus 24, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The law was a covenant given with stipulations on both parties that the people agreed to fulfill. Now, did Israel fulfill the covenant? Not even close. Didn't even come close. In fact, they broke it before they ever left the foot of Mount Sinai. So Paul brings up the intermediary and the two parties in the covenant to show that 
this covenant is different than the promises because in the promise to Abraham, God made the covenant all by himself. He didn't have any other party, no other stipulations. He's contrasting the law made with two parties. I'll do this and you guys do this, which they broke with the covenant that Abraham, he made with Abraham. When God made the covenant with Abraham, when he, when he promised salvation by faith to the nations for in Abraham, there were no intermediaries. There were no conditions. There were no stipulations. There was nothing on Abraham at all. In fact, it was a covenant made by God alone. In Genesis 15, when God made the covenant with Abraham, God put Abraham to sleep. And then God alone walked through the covenant ceremony. It was a covenant of one party with nothing but a promise that God would fulfill and nothing else was necessary. God swore by himself to fulfill the promise he gave to Abraham. That's what we're told in Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, working real hard, obtained the promise. No, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. God gave the promise of salvation by faith to Abraham. That's Paul's whole argument. There were no conditions. There were no demands. It was a promise of God alone, a covenant made by God alone. Paul's point to the Galatians is that think about what you're doing by saying, well, the gospel's great, but let's add, we need to add circumcision. We need to add the tradition of Moses. We need to add these washings. We need to add these rituals. We need to add all these other things. Paul says that is foolishness for you to deny God's unilateral promise and go back to a law covenant with stipulations on you that you can't keep, that nobody's ever kept, and that your fathers didn't keep. You see what he's saying? Please tell me you see. I don't want to start over. No, <laughs> Stop it. He's saying this law covenant had stipulations that nobody's ever fulfilled. It was given by an intermediary and it's a covenant of two parties. If you want to go back to that, then you got to keep the whole thing. Can you do it? Have you done it? You got to keep it from the moment you're born to the day that you die. You can't start today. You had to have already started. You could have, you must have never broken the covenant of God if you want to live by the law. But if you do that, you're denying the promise that God made all by himself with no stipulations, no conditions to Abraham. Now, you read that and we understand the argument and we say, well, hold on. Does that mean that the law and the promise contradict each other? Paul says, no, not at all. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No, certainly not. And this is why. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law was never intended to give life. Paul says, if there was a law that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. But his point is that there isn't a law that can do that. No law can give life. So what is the point of the law then? The point of the law is to drive us to the Savior. He says, but the scripture imprisoned, look at it, everything under sin. And this is why. So that... The promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, 
We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. I'll read 25 and 26 in a minute. The law can't give life. It was never intended to give life. It was intended to imprison you. It says scripture imprisoned everything, everyone under sin through the law. The law locks the whole world up by showing the perfect standard of God's holiness and his righteousness. It shows us our condemnation before God. The law holds us in prison and keeps us squarely under the wrath of God so that we cannot escape. And the law doesn't just show us the sinfulness of our actions. It shows us the wickedness of our hearts. In the law, we see that coveting is a sin. Lust is a sin. Pride is a sin. Idolatry is a sin. It's transgression before God. And it's in our hearts. The law shows us that not only must our actions be righteous all the time, 100% perfect, but when we do those actions... Our hearts must also be pure and holy and righteous and perfect 100% of the time. And that's the whole point. The law can't fix your heart. The law imprisons us. It's a cage. If you put a dog in a cage so he can't eat your cat, the cage will keep him from eating your cat. But the cage will not stop him from wanting to eat your cat. To be right with God, we must obey him, not just as a rebellious man locked up in a cage so I can't get away. We must do so from the heart with a pure and holy and perfect heart. So the law shows us the wickedness of our hearts. It shows us that we need to be washed clean from the inside. The law contained elaborate regulations to cleanse people before God. The law showed us the need for the temple and the priesthood and the altars and the sacrifices and all the washings and all the things that Israel had to do to be clean before God. And all of that pointed to Christ. None of it could cleanse you. So verse 22 says, the law imprisons us, look at it, so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. The promise through faith in Christ, the law drives us to Jesus because it shows us there's no escape from this prison. I feel like that too, just like that baby. The law shows us there's no escape. You can't get away. You can't get out, not by your own strength, not by your own working, not by your own stuff. And in verse 24, he says, the law is our guardian. Why? In order that, in order that we might be saved through Jesus Christ, justified by faith, it says, in order that we might be justified by faith. Some of your translations may say the law was our tutor, the law was our schoolmaster. The best translation, without me going into telling you what a pedagogue was in the first century, is the, a disciplinarian. He is a harsh trainer. The law is a disciplinarian, exposing our every sin, closing off every possible avenue, driving us to the only open door 
to get our inheritance. And that's the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the law does. Listen, we need to be very careful how we treat the law of God. The law is good. It's holy. It's righteous. We're told that in Romans 7. It's God's word, his inerrant, infallible word, holy and righteous. It reveals us, it reveals to us God's nature and the standard of righteousness. The law is the plow God uses to till up the soil of the sinner's heart so that they will see the need for a savior and be pointed to the only one that exists, Jesus Christ. The law is necessary. The law is how the Spirit convicts and drives people to Christ. On Wednesday nights, we have been walking through Exodus. And right now, we're right in the middle of the book of the covenant. We're talking about all the laws and the case laws and the applications of the Ten Commandments and all of those things. And when we began a couple of months ago in the Ten Commandments, we started that discussion um, with the command, of course, to have no other gods before me and to not make images, not make uh, images of the true God or of false gods or anything like that. And we discussed, we were discussing on Wednesday night how this applies in our own lives. And we talked a lot about pictures of Jesus and television shows like The Chosen and, and things like that about whether that was a breach of this command or not. And I ended up answering a bunch of questions whether this is technically a sin or whether that's technically breaking the law or this is and this ain't and this is and this is not and all of those things. And later that night, I was lying in my bed trying to go to sleep and this fear and dread just came over me. I realized by, I was doing the same thing the Pharisees had done. Well, this is technically not a sin. This is technically, this is, this is not. Don't worry about this, but do worry about this and all that stuff. I realized by saying all these things, I may have been soothing the consciences of people that the Holy Spirit was convicting by his law. God was using his law to bring conviction. And I was saying, oh, don't worry about this thing over here. Don't worry about that thing over there. So the next Wednesday night, I came back and I said, listen, I'm sorry. I did something really, really wrong last week. And I told them what I'd done. I said, I'm never going to do that again. If the law is convicting you of something in your life, that's what it's designed to do. Listen to it. My rule of thumb now when discussing these things is if you have any doubt, then there ain't no doubt. The law is the guardian, it's the tutor, it's the schoolmaster, it's the, it's the one that drives us to the only avenue of righteousness, pushes us to Jesus, shows us our sin. Be real careful about easing the consciences of someone who is under conviction of the law. We have to do what the Spirit does through the law. Point them to the Savior. Jason, I'm really worried about this law. Technically, what does it mean? Because I think I may have broken it. Oh, are you under conviction? I know a man who can fix that. I know a way. I know a way out of that prison. Listen, even as believers, we still need the law. The Spirit writes the law on our hearts. Shows us the perfect will of God. The law is useful. The law is good. As we walk in the Spirit, as we're going to get there in three or four years when we get to the end of Galatians, as we walk in the Spirit, we're led to love God. We're led to love our neighbors, which sums up the whole law. We're walking in the law, not by the letter, but by the Spirit. The difference is that believers do it from a new heart. 
We're not the dog locked up in the cage going, man, I really wish they let me out so I could get that cat. No, our hearts have been changed and we're let out of the cage of the law and our hearts say, I don't want the cat. I want to stay as far from the cat as I possibly can. The law is good. But you have to remember Paul's point in this whole big, long exercise. The law cannot save you. It cannot add not one iota of righteousness to you. Jesus Christ alone has done that. The law is a mirror that shows you your filthiness, but it cannot clean you. How many of you, if you get dirt on your face, you go home, you look in the mirror, you say, oh, I got dirt on my face. You take the mirror off the wall and try to clean your face with it. That's not what a mirror is intended to do. The law is a mirror that shows you your uncleanness. And the only door through which you can go to have yourself clean before God is Jesus Christ. The law is our disciplinarian. But only Christ can change hearts. That's what it says in verse 25 and 26. We're going to read these to end with, but we're going to pick up in 25 and 26, so we'll deal with them more fully next week. It says, but now faith has come. That faith has come. We're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That was the whole argument of the Judaizers. Oh, Gentiles, you can't be in Abraham's covenant. You can't be sons of Abraham. You can't be sons of God. If you want to do that, you got to trust Jesus and you got to follow in the steps of Abraham and do the rituals, do the circumcision, follow the law of Moses. No, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you Gentile, you Galatian, sons of God. Sons of God. Receive the inheritance. That's why it says sons of God. Firstborn son, receive the inheritance. You are adopted into this family. Jesus alone cleanses hearts. Jesus makes us sons of God, sons and daughters of God who obey from a new heart. We're new creatures. Jesus gives us new life. He alone has paid for all our sin, justifying us before this law of God that reveals our sinfulness. And he gives us his perfect righteousness because he is an Israelite who did keep the law and did keep the covenant of God. And he gives us his life and stands in our place to take our sin. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the heir of the promise. And in Jesus, as we sang the promise of God, all the promises of God for you are yes. He is the true heir. And in God's grace, he makes us co-heirs with him. Today, he offers that salvation to you as well. Believer, if you've been born again, walk in this gospel. That's what we're learning through Galatians. Walk in the gospel. Walk in what Jesus has done. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. Walk in the spirit of God. Understand that Jesus has done it all. All to him you owe. And you're free. There's rest and peace. And there's joy in the gospel. Because there's nothing else required of you. That is some good news. And today, if you don't know Christ, you're under the law to keep it perfectly. And if you haven't done it from the day that you were born to the day that you die, 
you're under the condemnation of God. And he has offered you a way out. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, come to him, trust in him, give your heart and life to him, repent of your sin, and call upon Jesus, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Give him your life today. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this gospel that is just unbelievably good news. Uh, it's, it's simple enough for a child to swim in, but you can just never get to the, to the bottom. That you would forgive our sin, that you would forgive our trespasses, that you would forgive our transgressions, that you would take one as such as myself who has done nothing his entire life but break your holy law and that you would offer forgiveness by sending your own son to die in my place. God, there's nothing greater than that, nothing higher than that. You are so good to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in that, to walk in the truth of that, to cast all of our cares upon you, to trust in Jesus alone. And God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would call upon their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, show them the cross, show them the blood, show them the sacrifice that you gave so that they might be adopted as sons and daughters of God. God, I pray that you would give them the strength to call out upon you and that they would trust in you for their salvation, giving you their hearts and lives, turning all that they are over to you and saying, I can't, I can't live righteously. I can't be right. I'm a sinner and I'm trusting in Jesus for my righteousness. God, I pray that you would save souls today and that you would show us how to walk in this gospel. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. I would love, if you want to come, I'd love to pray with you.